Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and your host for today's interview. I'm very excited to welcome Andrew Eisenberg to the podcast. Dr. Eisenberg is the Hall Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Kansas and is the author of several books and articles, including Mining California and Ecological History and Wyatt Earp, A Vigilante Life. His 2000 book, The Destruction of the Bison, an environmental history 1750 to 1920, just came out with a special 20th anniversary edition from Cambridge University Press, which we'll be discussing today. Welcome back to the New Books Network, Drew. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. I always like to begin the show by hearing a little bit about just the guests themselves. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe your background and how you became interested in history. Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I was always interested in history. I was a history major in college. It was clearly the subject I enjoyed the most. Um, but I didn't intend necessarily to go to graduate school in history. I, I thought perhaps I'd be an elementary school teacher. I, I did some volunteer teaching when I was in college at an elementary school. And I learned that, that my skill set did not include dealing with, with eight or nine-year-olds, at least at that point in my life. It didn't include that. Uh, so I thought about going to law school. And in my senior year in college, in those days, you, you sent away to the schools and they sent you paper applications form. And I had rolled one of those into my typewriter and I got about halfway through typing out the application. And, and then I, it just popped into my mind, what am I doing? I, I don't want to go to law school. I don't want to be a lawyer. And I, I, I pulled it out of the typewriter and I put in a fresh sheet of paper and I, I just started writing letters to graduate programs in history asking for applications to go do that. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways, I kind of stumbled into it. And what drew you to the topic of this book, to the topic of the near extinction of the bison? Well, when I went to graduate school at Northwestern University, I was intending to be an early Americanist. And what I wanted to work on was the encounter between settlers and natives. And the early Americanist at Northwestern was on leave my first year, so I I had to sort of figure out some other kinds of things to do. And when I first went to graduate school, I didn't even know that environmental history was a discrete field. I had read some environmental history as an undergraduate. And I had liked it, but I didn't know that this was something you could actually do. But there was an environmental historian at Northwestern, Art McAvoy, and he was really smart. I took a seminar with him. He was really professional. And I was drawn to the subject, and I I wanted to work with art. So I, I then had to kind of cast around for something that could be a dissertation. And in the summer between my first and second years in graduate school, I I went on a camping trip out west and I saw bison for the first time. And at the national parks, you know, I went into the bookstores and I bought some 
bad histories of the West, and I, I read them while I was traveling around and camping. But it didn't. It, it must have been percolating in my mind. But then when I went back for my second year in the graduate program, I, I distinctly remember I was I was up late grading midterm exams. It must have been about one in the morning, and the idea of writing a dissertation about the bison, about how there had once been a lot of them, and then a century later, there were very few. They were on the edge of extinction. That just came into my mind as a potential dissertation topic. It's sort of a classic historical problem, isn't it? That you have a you know a, 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 a set of animals that are there at one point and they're not there at the next. What explains that change? Yeah, and that's I. I knew I had a good historical question. I I did not have an answer, and in fact, my my initial thoughts were that white hide hunters had, had gone out and been primarily responsible for doing the bison in. And of course, as happens with any kind of topic, the more you dig into it, the more complicated and the more nuanced you find it to be. And so I, I found lots of other things that, that were important. So for this new 20th anniversary edition of the book, you wrote a new foreword and a new afterword where you reflect on a few things, including the book's genesis and some reactions to its arguments within the the field of history and environmental history. Can you first explain a bit about the kind of historiographical moment that gave rise to this project, what you were reading and what was going on in the field of history at this time? Um, What other historians was Destruction of the Bison in communication with? And then maybe a little bit about what kind of reaction the book received. Yeah, it. There, environmental history was not a big field in the you know in 1990 when I started writing that dissertation proposal. You know, I I was reading people everybody has heard about. You know, Bill Cronin and, and Richard White and Donald Worcester and and Alfred Crosby and you know. I, to a certain extent, I think as a graduate student, I felt myself in conversation with them, even though that, that you know, seems outrageous to say because they were already so well established, you know, these prize winning historians. But there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of in between yet. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of work in, in environmental history yet. And so those of us who were starting out writing our dissertations at that point, I think we felt we had to play off of um, uh, those luminaries, really, those founders of the field. Um, so to some extent, that's that's the group I thought I was in conversation with. And of course, as I wrote the dissertation and as I revised it into a book, the field started to really mature and there were a lot more things that came out. In fact, I think it was my last year of graduate school, um, as I've done all the research and I'm embarked on the writing, Dan Flores came out with an article in Journal of American History about the Southern Plains bison, and I, I, you know, I had that moment of despair. I think that a lot of graduate students have, and oh my gosh, I've been scooped. I thought I was the person working on this, and someone now has a really well placed article about it. Um, but that that was the group I felt myself in conversation with. And what sort of reaction did the book receive after after it came out? Well, it's hard for me to say. Um, I think at the time I felt that people either loved it or hated it, and I think fortunately, uh, you know, uh, enough people loved it. But I got a I got a nice review from William McNeil in um, um, the uh, the New York book uh, the New York Review of Books, and um, 
and that was that was nice. But there were some other people who didn't like the book. I think there were people who were partisans to some extent of an older interpretation of uh, Native people's interaction with the environment, and they felt that my saying that there were some moments, particularly at the height of the bison robe trade, where some Native peoples harvest of the bison was unsustainable, that they didn't they didn't like that very much. Uh, and so there was some negative reviews from that point of view. Um, but, you know, I, I, I hadn't gone into that topic thinking that I would argue that. And I just came across so much evidence that pointed me in that direction that I, you know, that's, that's where the, that's where the research took me. What was the experience like of returning to a book many years later and many projects later and, and reading it again and thinking about it again uh, from, from where you stand now? Did, did you feel like it held up pretty well? And just kind of what was that experience like in general? That experience was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I proposed somewhat blithely to Debbie Gershenowitz at Cambridge University Press that I could go back and write a new afterward and a forward, and she was very enthusiastic about that idea. Because I had continued to give talks about the bison, and I had thought about the grasslands, and I had written a couple of articles in the you know, intervening years about certain aspects of the bison or grasslands, I thought it would be relatively easy for me to just whip up a new forward and a new afterward. And it, it actually was extremely difficult because I, I had to go back and reread the book and, and put myself back into the position that I had been in as a younger scholar when I'd written this in the first place and revisit a lot of mistakes and trying to realize how had I been thinking about this and um, should I ignore some negative reviews? Should I try to address those negative reviews? It actually turned out to be a much harder and more time-consuming undertaking than I first imagined it would be. Without getting too meta about things, it, it kind of seems like it would be an interesting way to kind of reflect upon one's career and where they started out as a scholar and where they have ended up in the intervening years as a scholar as well. That, that is exactly what it was. And that was a sort of series of reflections that I don't think I was, I knew that I was going to have to undertake and, and yet I had to do them anyway. So on the whole, upon rereading the book and, and, and looking at it again from, from 20 years on, did you feel as though it held up pretty well? Were you, were you happy with the work that you had done 20 years ago or, you know, 30 years ago since you started it earlier? Well, I, there's not a single answer to that. Um, there right. are some things that I thought I, I dealt with pretty well. I think a lot of times I felt as I reread the book that I had some good evidence that I just didn't make enough of. And I've, I've found this myself when I've been advising graduate students in, in later years, that I, I tell them, look, you've come across a really good piece of evidence here. Slow down. Draw some more out of it. And as I went back and looked at the book, I thought there were a lot of moments where I had really sort of poignant moments and really good pieces of evidence that I could have I could have slowed down and taken a couple more paragraphs to really draw some more meaning out of it. And I think that that's something that you learn how to do later on as a scholar when you have a little bit more confidence about what you're doing. And at the at the time when you're writing the book that evolved out of your dissertation, or at least for me, it was this. I just felt I needed to slap more and more evidence. I didn't feel I could slow down and, and draw any particular meaning out of any you know, smaller pieces of evidence. 
And that's something you talk a bit about in the the new forward to the book as well, are some of the things that you wish you had done a little bit differently. And if I remember correctly, in the forward, you talk about um, how this book came out just as the field of environmental history was kind of taking a transnational turn and that you wished you'd done a little bit more in, in that regard. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I thought I was being transnational by the standards of the late 1990s. You know, I, I, I <laughs> my bison cross over into Canada ever so slightly. I, I really should have done much, much more. I should have gone and, and done research in Canada. I should have devoted uh, a lot more attention to that. Um, but but I didn't. Uh, you know, it just I, I think part of the reason for that was that I was so focused on United States policy against um, Native Americans in the Great Plains that uh, that just without really thinking about it too much, because, you know, in the late 1990s, a lot of us didn't necessarily think in transnational terms automatically. We had to force ourselves to do that. And so our my default mode was to think in those national terms in those days. And so I, I didn't really shake myself out of that. But I, I thought at the time I was with the few gestures that I'd made toward things happening outside the United States, that that was enough. And by today's standards, it's, it's woefully insufficient. Um, I think some of the other things I would have done differently. Uh, there's a there's some attention to gender in the book. There's there's some attention to at the time of the excuse me the conservation of the bison that a lot of the guys involved in the conservation of the bison were very concerned with notions of masculinity and I, I think I did an okay job with that. What I didn't do as good a job with was talking about gender relations within Native societies and how that um, was involved in the robe trade. And, you know, again, at the time, I thought I'd done enough on that subject with retrospect, you know, with the with in retrospect, I should have done much more. And I I think the, the other thing I wish I'd drawn a lot more out of was that when I was Educating myself about grassland ecology, I became very taken with new ideas in, in chaos theory and nonlinear dynamics as a way of understanding how changeable and unpredictable uh, an environment like a grasslands environment can be. And I really was um, discouraged from making a big deal out of uh, chaos theory by some of the editors at Cambridge University Press. And I I, in retrospect, I wish I had stuck to my guns and really insisted that this be a bigger part of my discussion of the environment. But, you know, when it's your when it's your first book and it's a book you need to publish to get tenure, you know, you you, you don't always stick to your guns as much. So I, I, I regret not insisting on that. Yeah, when you're at that stage in your career, you're still learning, uh, you know, A, how to, as you said, stick to your guns, and B, what is worth kind of sticking to and what is worth giving up. And it sounds like this is something that, in, in retrospect, you wish you had not quite given so much up on. That's exactly right. So let's talk about the book a bit and its central argument. So to begin, why don't you tell us about the Great Plains environment, its animals, and its people prior to the arrivals of Europe- the arrival of Europeans to North America in the 15th and 16th centuries? Well, in, in terms of the environment itself, one I think one has to understand that grasslands environment as extremely changeable and unpredictable. It's an extraordinarily drought-prone environment. And that animal populations, population of bison, responded to that 
climate change. You know, we can go back and see by looking at um, kill sites where um, you know, the, the ancestors of Native Americans now had driven large numbers of bison off of bluffs and cliffs. You can see there are long periods where there are very few remains. And so we, we can put that together with what we know about the climate from tree ring records and realize that there are long periods where there's less rainfall, less precipitation, and the bison population drops. So that bison population was going up and down. And I think this was one of the big things I tried to do in the book, was to suggest that it's not as if the environment was this stable, pristine place, and then people showed up and destabilized it. That the environment was always somewhat unstable, and that when people showed up, that just added a new kind of instability with, you know, people showed up with sometimes unsustainable uh, exploitation of the bison. That added a new kind of unsustainability to it. And what about the, the, the people and the animals that lived on the Great Plains prior to European arrival? What about them? Well, I think the, the way to think about not just the Great Plains, but almost all grasslands in, in earlier periods of human history they're, they're like inland seas in the sense that except for river valleys where people can farm, those high plains areas are, it's like going out on the high seas in a ship. You can go out there and you can, you know, find some animals to harvest, and, but then you've got to go back to shore. You've got to go back to some, some sort of safer place where you can endure for a longer time. That the, the grasslands of North America really resisted long-term habitation by large numbers of people until the horse made its way to North America because of European colonization and after you know, it took a couple hundred years for those horses to make their way via intergroup trade to native groups on the fringes of the Great Plains. And then they adopted those horses, turned themselves into much more mobile societies, and were able to exploit bison in the Great Plains because they could move around with greater facility. So I think that until the encounter and until the sort of ecological effects of the encounter, like the arrival of horses to the Great Plains, the grasslands resisted having very many people living in them. And yet the bison themselves were remarkably well adapted to the, the grasslands, although you talk in the book a lot about the fluctuations of bison populations as well. So can you tell us a little about the relationship between the bison and the grasslands prior to the arrival of, of colonizers from Europe? Well, the, the bison and the grasses in the Great Plains, the short grasses in the western Great Plains primarily, really uh, evolved together. The, the bison are well adapted to those grasses, and those grasses are well adapted to the kind of grazing that, that, that bison do. Um, now, when drought came, those grasses in the, in the far western parts of the Great Plains would tend to, to shrivel, but then drought would also open up places for those short grasses in what we now think of as the central mixed grass plains. And bison would tend to move around, and they they would aggregate in the summer when those grasses were thick, and they would break up into small foraging groups in the winter when the grasses were thinner and harder to find. So, you know, in lots of ways, those, those two kinds of species, plant and animal, were really quite well adapted to each other over, you know, an adaptation that, that took a long, long time to evolve. 
one thing upon rereading this book for this interview that struck me was um, how much you really needed to know about grass in order to write this. That there's a, a lot of sections in there where you really show that you read a lot about different kinds of grass and about how different animals feed on different kinds of grass. And it really kind of drives home the point that you're making that the grassland environment is a major factor in the story that you are telling. Well, yes. And, and to give credit where credit is due, in one of my close to finished drafts of the book, I had taken all that information about grass and about the grassland ecology, and I'd broken it up into different chapters because I was trying to integrate that sort of material analysis with the economic and cultural analyses. And uh, Don Worcester at Cambridge University Press said, you need to put this all in the beginning and have a grassland environment chapter at the outset, which I, you know, in my naivete resisted doing, but in that, that was good advice. So what changes after Euro-Americans arrive? You mentioned the horse, for instance, but what else changes? I guess what I'm kind of asking in short is what causes the destruction of the bison? Well, I think in a, in a meta sense, to borrow your word, it was the encounter that caused the destruction of the bison. And I mean the encounter not just in the cultural and economic interpenetration and borrowing that went back and forth, but also when we had the encounter, it was the meaning of of the meeting of two ecologies as well, um, that that the the various environmental things such as the horse that Europeans brought with them when they came to the Americas had an enormous effect on the bison in the end, and essentially the encounter created new kinds of bison hunters on both sides of the encounter. That those mobile nomadic bison hunting societies. You know, the, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Comanche, those were really a creation of the encounter. It wasn't until the horse that those societies reinvented themselves as nomadic bison hunters. And on the other side of the encounter, it, it wasn't until the encounter that you had white people moving out into the Great Plains in the 1870s and into the early 1880s intent on hunting bison. It was the encounter that also created that type of bison hunter as well. So, you know, there are obviously other things that contributed to this. There are, there are environmental factors that contributed as well. But it was human hunters who delivered the coup de grace to the bison. It was white hunters who delivered the coup de grace to the bison. And in a big sense, it was the encounter that created those white hunters and had earlier on created those native hunters. And why didn't the bison disappear entirely? What ends up saving the species uh, from total extinction? Well, in one sense, it was just luck that there were a handful of bison that managed to find themselves, you know, not really in the plains environment, but some of them in what became Yellowstone National Park. Uh, and they were just far enough away from hunters that they were they were able to survive. But, you know, one of the big reasons that the, the species survived was that there was a concerted effort to preserve the bison at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. And, you know, there were some ranchers who rounded up some bison calves, some motherless calves, and raised them alongside their domestic cattle. They raised them as novelties, um, and they would sell them to zoos, and they would sell them to Wild West shows. Uh, and they were essentially, you know, raising them in order to make a profit. And there were a number of people who had a very nostalgic idea about 
the 19th century American West, only just a few years into the 20th century, people such as Teddy Roosevelt and, and George Grinnell and others who founded a, a really elite group called the um, um, uh, American Bison Society. And they, they met at Delmonico's in New York and they, they you know, smoked cigars and they talked about where they could establish little postage stamp bison preserves. And they bought bison from these ranchers, from these dealers, and they stocked these preserves. So they really kind of preserved the bison as a kind of tourist uh, draw, as a kind of nostalgic memory of what the frontier had once been. They didn't have a, a sense of preserving an environment or preserving a species in a, in a way we would think about it now. They weren't terribly concerned that there were only a handful of these animals left. They thought that that handful must represent the fittest members of the species. Um, but it was from that little beginning that people have been able in more recent decades to undertake preservation of the bison that makes more ecological sense, that, that spreads them out over much larger areas, that has larger herds so you don't have that sort of genetic bottleneck problem. Why do you think the bison then, and I would argue still today, has such a powerful, can represent such a powerful symbol of this idea of the frontier that people like Teddy Roosevelt were, were so into? Why do you think that is? Oh, I, I think it's for the same reason that Teddy Roosevelt saw the bison as a symbol of the frontier. You know, it's the largest land mammal in North America. It's been the symbol of the Interior Department, I think, for as long as there's been an Interior Department. Uh, it it has that association with the uh, mobile horse-mounted native societies of the Great Plains. And I think for a lot of Americans, as well as for a lot of Western Europeans, those Native Americans are the, the archetype of Native Americans because they you know, wear feathered headdresses and lived in teepees. And so I think the bison sort of draws in a lot of those nostalgic and sometimes invented associations with the West and wilderness and the frontier and, and all those really problematic concepts. How healthy are the bison as a species in North America today? Where do they stand and where, what about the Great Plains themselves? How, how, how healthy are the plains as an environment today as well? Well, first the bison. There are, there are about 20,000 bison in state and federal preserves in the United States, and about another 20,000 on tribal reserves. And those numbers are dwarfed by the number of bison that are on, on private ranches where they are raised to be slaughtered. So the bison is one of those strange animals that you can go and see in a zoo. And you can also go to Whole Foods and you can buy a, a bison steak. It's, a, it's one of those strange animals that falls into that, that weird category that's both a domestic animal that's raised for human consumption and is considered a wild animal that needs to be put in a zoo or a preserve. Um, I think one of the problems, because there were so few bison left at the end of the 19th century, and then that problem was made worse by the fact that they were preserved in even smaller herds, that there was a kind of genetic bottleneck problem. And a lot of those bison that survived, some of them were interbred with domestic cattle. So the, genetically, the bison is not as healthy a species as it once was. Um, but, it, you know, they're still around. And so that's, that's a good thing. The grasslands themselves, 
there are very few patches of the North American Great Plains that where you find native grass species. Uh, it's it's been grazed heavily by exotic species such as cattle. A lot of it's been plowed up and and you know planted with exotic species such as wheat. Uh, there's not a lot of the native grasses of the Great Plains left. Um, yeah, the and you know a lot of a lot of that uh, growing of wheat has been made possible by pumping water out of underground aquifers, and that water will eventually run out. So I think in lots of ways the the Great Plains um, it's it's hard to tell necessarily from looking at them, but they're they're not in the healthiest possible shape. And in the afterward, you discuss the relevance of the story of the Great Plains uh, ecology and biome and the bison uh, to today's world. Can you explain that a bit for us? Sure. Um, I think what a lot of people were troubled when they read the book is that I suggested that that Native Americans in the Great Plains were partly responsible for the destruction of the bison, that they're, when they be, were drawn into a commercial exchange with uh, uh, Euro-Americans and they were providing bison robes to Euro-Americans, their consumption of the bison at that point, I, I am convinced, was unsustainable. And really one of the arguments I was making there was that these Native people had become economic specialists they had become highly mobile. They had come to make uh, commerce an important part of their economy. And what I was really suggesting is that in lots of ways, they had become modern, at least in an economic sense. And I'm not suggesting that, that Native people were exactly like Euro-Americans. They're really important cultural distinctions. But at least in terms of their interaction with the environment, they had adopted a number of of modern economic innovations, and that that made their consumption of the bison unsustainable and ultimately led to the near extinction of the species. And so what I was suggesting was that, that this is really a lesson for all modern economies that are overly specialized and that are overly commercialized and that rely on the exploitation of nature. And you know, that, applies to, that applies to our economy and our society as well. Again, looking at the book now from the remove of a couple decades, what do you see as its legacy? What impact do you think that it had on the field of environmental history? Yeah, I, I don't know whether I'm the person to say what its legacy <laughs> is or what, it, what people's reaction to it is. Um, I will say that, that in, the, in the new edition, uh, Pekka Hemelainen of, of Oxford University wrote a very nice blurb on the back in which he said, that it's, it's one of those books that is both the definitive work on the subject and also offers a new interpretation that changes how we thought about that subject. And, you know, I, I would like for that to be true. If that is true and that is the legacy of the book, I I, that's very nice. I would be very happy. I, I don't know whether I can say that, but if, if Pekka says it, it must be true. I was hoping to draw you into patting yourself on the back on a job well done a little bit, but it looks like you're going to resist the impulse. If let, let me ask this then. So um, 
if there are, if, if a scholar today wants to write a book about the bison or about the North American Great Plains more generally, what questions do you think still remain on those topics to be answered? What has not been answered either by your book or by a scholar like Dan Flores or other people that write about the plains and about the bison that someone could uh, conceivably write about today? Well, I mean, I, I think that someone could take up many of the same questions that 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 I was asking. And and come up with different answers that are that are just as right. I'm not one of those people who thinks that there is a right answer to, to certain questions. I think that there are lots of right answers. And you know, the questions I asked: How many bison were there in in the Great Plains in say 1750 or 1800? You know, I took the best shot at that that I could, but I, I think that someone could come to that again. And, and have a different kind of answer. I mean, I also asked, was the, the natives in the Great Plains, was their use of the bison prior to the, the onset of the robe trade with Euro-Americans, was it sustainable? And I, I argued that, you know, in a good year, in a year that wasn't a drought year, it probably was sustainable, but probably right on the edge of sustainability, given what we know about bison ecology. But again, someone else with new evidence and a new look at the topic might come up with a slightly different answer. And then I also asked what ultimately caused the near extinction of this species. And as I, I said earlier, I think it ultimately came from the encounter itself and the new kinds of bison hunters that were created on both sides of the encounter. But that's a, that's a really open-ended kind of question, and I think that there are any number of answers to that. So I, you know, as, as, as nice as it was for Pekka to say that this is the definitive work on the subject, um, you know, no, no work stays the definitive work on a subject forever. And I'm sure people will come along eventually and, and uh, at least tweak what it is I had to say. And then finally, if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding, what might that be? I would say that if there's one takeaway, it's that... Um, you know, I, I think that, that there's a, a, a real strong residue in American historiography, uh, historiography of thinking that, that big things have to have big causes and, and that, you know, it has to be sort of big and consequential. And one of the things that I was struck by as I was, as I was writing this book was, you know, there are smallpox microbes that have a an enormous effect out on the Great Plains. There are, you know, other kinds of microbes, brucellosis and Texas tick fever that are affecting the bison and causing those populations to decline. There are changes of a few degrees in climate that are having a big effect on what's going on. And, you know, I, I think that we tend to devalue, uh, first of all, environmental agency in our understanding, not just of history, but about the way the world works now. And I think we tend to devalue things that are small and unseen and tend to think that they, they can't have huge effects if, you know, the, the, once the ball starts rolling. And one of the things that struck me from writing this bison book was that, you know, one has to pay attention to those small and seemingly insignificant things because they can have really consequential effects. That's sort of the, the, the butterfly effect that you talk about a bit in the book that's as well, exactly right? exactly right. That is exactly the butterfly effect. And, and yes. And then I always like to end my interviews by getting a preview of what the authors that I speak with are working on next. So can you talk a little bit about, about your current project and what you're working on now? 
Sure. Um, I am, I hope in the, you know, maybe a year away from being finished with a book that um, really tackles the consensus about manifest destiny in the first half of the 19th century. And my sense is that manifest destiny was not a consensus among Americans in the first half of the 19th century, that it was, in fact, a very narrow and partisan view, that there were many visions for what the West could or should be in the first half of the 19th century. And a lot of those visions accepted that the United States actually was relatively weak, that it was asserting a sovereignty over the borderlands, that it it really could not make good on. And the United States had to contend with really powerful, autonomous native groups and also had to contend with competing uh, empires, you know, uh, the British you know, up in Canada and, and New Spain and, and later Mexico. And so a lot of these competing visions were actually far more oriented toward accommodation with natives, uh, toward diplomatic suasion. There were ideas that um, natives who had converted to Christianity might become allies of the United States and be you know, sort of autonomous entities in the West. There were some people who were proposing that the West could be a place for to be a colony of ex-slaves. Uh, there are any number of different visions that are out there competing with Manifest Destiny. And just because what O'Sullivan said in 1845 kind of sort of worked out, I think a lot of historians in a somewhat lazy way have assumed that this is what all Americans were thinking. And in fact, I think American society and American views of the West in the first part of the 19th century were really complex and diverse. I had Tommy Richards on the podcast recently to talk about his recent book, Breakaway Americas, and he makes a similar argument in that book. So it seems like there's a real movement afoot within the historiography of um, the early American West to make a claim that's similar to the thing that you're talking about right now. Well, you know, Tommy and I, and, and Tommy wrote his dissertation at Temple, and, and I had the privilege of advising him, but Tommy and I wrote a, a short article about this in Pacific Historical Review in 2017, in which we laid out some of these ideas, yeah. Andrew Eisenberg is the Hall Distinguished Professor of American History at the University of Kansas. His 2000 book, The Destruction of the Bison and Environmental History 1750-1920, is just out with a new 20th anniversary edition from Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Drew. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks. 